Psalm 96. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, praise his name. Proclaim his salvation day after day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous deeds among all peoples. For great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and glory are his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord all, your, all you families of the nation. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due to his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. The world is firmly established and it cannot be moved. He will judge the people with equity. Let the heavens rejoice, let the earth be glad. Let the sea resound and all that is in it. Let the fields be jubilant and everything in them. Let all the trees of the forest sing for joy. Let all creation rejoice before the Lord, for he comes, he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good, good morning, everybody. Uh, I'm new to this, so I should introduce myself. I'm Charles. I'm now a member of uh, the congregation here at St. Anne's in Limehouse. But uh, previously, I was born in Singapore, where we worship all sorts of things, really. So a bit of Buddha, uh, some ancestor worship, sometimes the funny rock in our garden, Santa Claus at Christmas time, you know that. But worst of all, I grew up in a medical household where everything was very much evidence-based. So really, we were very committed atheists and so Jesus was lumped in with um, all the superstitious nonsense. But uh, I'm amazed as any of you to be standing here today telling you how wonderful our God is. So all I can say is um, he's extremely forgiving and very, very patient. So thank you, God, and be with us today. Amen. <clears throat> um, so that's where I come from. And this is where I hope to be going to, my summary of Psalm 96, which is, God is everything perfectly good and absolutely worthy of worship. Therefore, all the world worship Jesus. Uh, why worship? So in ancient times, this wonderful psalm, full of uh, you know, the joys of creation, was used as God's people came into an audience with their great king at the temple of Jerusalem to worship God. So coming to church is our equivalent. And if you're not sure what you should be doing when you come in the doors on a Sunday, or even why you're here, then this passage should give you some answers. First of all, the Psalms are written as poetry. And um, as students of English literature will know, poems are sort of passionate expressions filled with rhythm, structure, metaphors, hidden meanings, but above all, they're meant to be beautiful. 
So as this is an all family service, I will be dropping keynotes like this on various subjects, which I hope the kids will find useful for SATs or GCSEs, um, because that's just what Asian parents do, sorry. Um, but anyway, um, fill in your worksheets, kids. These ones, okay. Um, right, back to poetry. Uh, rhythm. You'll notice the psalm starts with a call to sing three times, followed by another three calls to ascribe in verse 7, which means acknowledging the wonderful qualities of the Lord. So why three times, I wonder? Well, yes, it's probably for poetic effect and repetition for emphasis, and God does seem to like the number three a lot. But for the Christian, I think there's an irresistible answer as to why people might be addressing their one God almost as if he were three persons. So who says there's nothing about Jesus in the Old Testament? Poetry. But obviously, it's also a song. Uh, unlike, say, Islam, our God loves music and is definitely not a Philistine. His hallmark is order, beauty, and creativity, which is why, as Robin said, we sing new songs to respond to his mercies, which are new every morning. So the Psalms often specify a whole band of instruments, like uh, lyres, trumpets, percussion, and there might even have been a bit of dancing. Don't look like that, Toby. I think if you're horrified at the idea of an outbreak of dad dancing in the aisles, then remember it was good enough for him, King David, who the Bible says in the book of Samuel was cutting quite a rug as he sang these very words. The point is that worship should be an uncontrollable and inevitable sequence of coming into the presence of our God. So much so, as you see in the psalm, that even the trees of the forest and other inanimate objects spontaneously erupt into praise. I wonder how many of us really felt like that as we walked in the doors this morning. Or were we thinking about all the chores we'd interrupted? Or why we had to wake up at this ungodly hour of oh, 11 o'clock to hear this talk? There seem to be so many other things we prioritize before God. And those things, by definition, we call idols. Which brings us to the next verses, which tell us exactly the reasons why we should be very, very excited to be here. Why God? So, verse 4 starts with, For great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. <clears throat> all of us live in a very secular world where our needs are provided for, not by a god, but by the wonders of scientific progress. Yes, even Christians, I think. After all, if we want to go to Australia, right, we don't just pray about it. No, we get into an A380 and then we trust in aerodynamic theory. Um, somehow we get there and then we, we pray about it. But uh, do we need God nowadays or is he even relevant when science seems to be the great God of this age? So, in this verse, the word for idols is a hilarious Hebrew pun 
on God, literally meaning godlets, which dismisses them as puny, worthless things. And when you think about it, all our obsessions with money, work, status, our homes, material objects, they're all over man-made things. Who would be silly enough to worship their own creations? It should be the other way around. So similarly, science is a man-made tool and should be our servant, not our God. It's man's understanding of the laws ordering the natural world which he applies to his own use. But as to why there's order at all in the universe that tends towards disorder, science has no answer. As the psalm reminds us, it was the Lord who ordered the heavens from nothing. And what wonderful heavens he's made. Our sun, one of 400 billion in a galaxy, which is itself one of 200 billion. We're only starting to glimpse the wonders with our new space telescopes and already overwhelming. So the pillars of creation, which are star nurseries and the Eagle Nebula. And God didn't just stop at the heavens. Verse 10 says, the world is firmly established by the Lord also and everything in it. So even when I was an atheist before I knew God, I loved the work of his hands. When you see the perfection of a flower or the beautiful variety of the things he has made, you can see why the heavens reign, the, he the heavens rejoice, the earth is glad, the sea resounds, and all that is in it. Let all creation rejoice before the Lord, for he comes, the fields jubilate, the trees sing for joy. How can anyone stand before these sublime landscapes crafted by the maker of all things and not sing out, my Lord and God? Then sings my soul. This is what the Psalm says we should be going for. And what about man-made marvels like poetry and song, which uh, the psalm was talking about? To science, music is just noise, vibrations of energy waves, but God orders the harmonic oscillations to create things of beauty that he delights in. And not just sonic masterworks, but art, drama, and architecture. We all, made in his image, can reflect the creative and beautiful character of our God in the work of our hands and glorify his name. And God's goodness doesn't stop at created things either. He's splendid in his holiness in verse 9, which means he's also the God of abstract things which we value, the holy things that science is completely indifferent to. So things like love and truth, righteousness and justice, or as the Bible says, everything true, right, noble, pure, lovely, admirable, praiseworthy, and excellent. In verse 6, splendor and majesty, strength and beauty stand before him. All these wonderful qualities of God are summed up in the word that's used over and over again here, which is glory. In scripture, this has a specific meaning, which is God's presence appearing amongst us. So the Hebrew word kabod conveys this idea of an unbearable weight coming upon you, 
which sounds a bit like God landing on you like a ton of bricks. But uh, I think a more poetic metaphor would be gravity, wouldn't it? Which is, after all, the scientific concept behind weight and mass. So we think of the greatest objects in the universe, like a supermassive black hole made of a billion, billion stars. It irresistibly draws everything to revolve around its fearful presence until at the event horizon, entire worlds are compressed into a singularity and time and space and all the laws of nature suddenly stop. And then everything of the physical and material world is annihilated and we pass into a supernatural world beyond human comprehension. So how amazing that science is finally catching up with God's word. And there's no reason, of course, why we should automatically worship our creator. I think the hot debate now is about whether AI and robots might wipe out the troublesome human makers, Terminator style. But fortunately for us, the thing about God is that as well as being infinitely mighty, he's also absolutely, without any shadow of doubt, perfectly good. So why wouldn't we want to get as close to him as we possibly can? But isn't perfectionism bad, you say? Won't it lead to tiger parenting? Uh, which reminds me, time for another mass question. If God were not good, just a little bit, say one second every billion years or so and lost his temper and started beating us up, how many seconds of suffering would we have to put up with in an everlasting heaven? Yes, you're right, an infinite time of torture. Who'd want to go there? So that's why God has to be perfect in his holiness. To be worthwhile, heaven must be perfectly good. And we, who cannot be perfectly good, however hard we try, will contaminate heaven if we ever made entry. So you can see God's problem. For man, becoming perfect is hopeless. So God will just have to step in personally and do something about it. Okay, so um, we can see why God is great and worthy of praise, but why Jesus? This psalm was written several hundred years, no, a thousand years before Christ arrived. Why should we worship him instead of popping down to the local synagogue? Well, the answer is we can't because Judaism is famously non-inclusive. So basically, if you're not born Jewish, you're just doomed. To its original Jewish audience, parts of this psalm would have been unexpected. The command to all the earth to worship in verse one. And just to make sure we got the point, we are to declare God's glory in verse three among the nations and among all peoples. Yeah, but this was always a reminder that God's plan from way back in Genesis 12, that all peoples on earth will be blessed through you, was always a promise of Abraham's one particular descendant, Jesus, coming to bless the Gentiles as well as the Jews. And without this, none of us would be sitting here. Now, if you look at the final verse, you'll see that the song is addressed not just to its Jewish audience, but speaks to the future and therefore to us. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. It's interesting, isn't it, that this judgment is not a dreadful time for God's people. In fact, 
all of creation even, waiting in eager expectation, will rejoice. How can we possibly rejoice when we, as material creatures riddled with sin, are about to be extinguished by the perfect holiness of a supermassive God? Well, thank God for Jesus. So verse 8 commands us to bring an offering and come into his courts. To enter God's courts in Old Testament times was essential to bring an offering, usually something like this, a sacrifice of a lamb or a dove to cover up our sin. But it clearly never worked because it had to be repeated constantly and still people's, God's people continue to drift away from him. And logically, how can the blood of dumb animals ever compensate for every sin of the worst sinners over all of the horrible history of sin. Surely only the sacrifice of God himself on a cosmic level that we can never fully understand can atone for the human condition. And this is exactly what the crucifixion of Jesus achieves. It's the only effective and sufficient sin offering because Jesus offers us his perfection and it's ours just for the asking. Verse 9 commands us to worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. So the meaning of this phrase, we use it very often, is not clear even to Jews. It seems to be associated in other parts of the Bible with being dressed appropriately when coming before the king, for example, in priestly garments. So I suppose that's why many previous congregations came to church in their Sunday best. But looking around at this present company, it's not immediately obvious that many of us have made the effort today. But uh, don't worry, that's fine. Clothes don't matter, because by his work, Jesus has taken away our filthy rags and given us his cloak of righteousness to cover up our sins. So we can stand before our awesome God once again like Adam and Eve, sinless and unashamed, and dwell with him forever. So going back to the wonderful promise of coming into God's courts, this psalm traditionally associated with the consecration of the second temple. So I expect you know this was a monument in um, precious stone and magnificent woodwork and gold and silver. But curiously, though the first mention of this psalm was much earlier, several hundred years earlier in First Chronicles, because uh, King David apparently composed it for the entry of the ark into his splendid new capital then, Jerusalem, to its new home fit for an almighty God of the universe, which unexpectedly was not something like this, but a tent. Um, this reminds us that the glory of God came to earth in the person of a weak and humble man, Jesus, and that today, because of our redemption by his blood from sin, we not only can approach God and dwell in his house, but amazingly, he chooses to dwell in us, making us individually temples of the living God. It's an awesome thought, isn't it, that a power greater than the energy of a quintillion suns resides within the fragile vessels of our bodies. And if that doesn't make you worship God, then nothing will. We worship because God's worth it. 
And for us Christians, worship isn't just praise and a few songs on a Sunday morning, but offering ourselves as living sacrifices by godly living, good works, transformation through his word and witnessing. So this is our logical act of worship according to Romans. So as living temples, we are duty bound, as verse two says, to proclaim his salvation among the nations day after day. So worship shouldn't end on a Sunday or when you exit the building. <clears throat> In fact, the very best church I've heard of had a really great sign which said, welcome to the house of worship, not at its grand entrance, but at the door going out. So finally, back to the curriculum, let's finish with science. I hope you can see that God is the God of every subject, physics, astronomy, mass language, natural history, and art. But all the knowledge in the world is useless if you don't know the Lord. God is everything perfectly good. So what's not to worship? If you don't yet know the Lord, I really urge you to find out more by getting a Bible and opening it and speaking with any one of the ministers here at St. Anne's. And can I also ask you to pray with me? Heavenly Father, I, we thank you for your almighty acts of creation and love and your promise that you are near. I pray that those who are fed up with the disappointments of this broken world will turn to the true source of perfect goodness and find you when they reach out for you. Through Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.